Hello, and welcome to our Top of Mind podcast. In this program, we will sit down with a higher education technology thought leader and discuss the innovative projects they are working on now and into the future. I'm your host, Caitlin Elkani, Vice President of Client Services and Cybersecurity Research at the Tambellini Group. I'm joined today by Mike Korn, the Chief Information Security Officer at the University of California, San Diego, a Tambellini Group member. Over the next few minutes, we are going to hear about Mike's thoughts on leading a cybersecurity program in higher ed. Just in time to kick off Cybersecurity Awareness Month. Let's get started. Welcome to the program, Mike. Nice to be here, Caitlin. Thanks for joining us today. Let's kick off the discussion with cybersecurity training. What are your thoughts on the importance or lack of importance of cybersecurity awareness training? Well, this is a very appropriate topic for National Cybersecurity Awareness Month, as you can imagine. And it's been interesting to watch how security awareness has changed over the course of my career. In the early days, um, it was difficult to get people to pay attention to this. No one thought it was an important topic. And when you were talking about security awareness, they'd ask you, oh, you want me to run antivirus software? But as you've seen in the political universe for the last year or so, cybersecurity awareness is in this golden age where you basically can't open a newspaper without hearing about cyber attacks, uh, foreign actors attacking us. And it's an interesting time is because I think we've gotten to a point where most people are aware of cybersecurity, and most people are aware this is something they need to think about. I think the challenge is, though, that we've done a bad job uh, as a field of showing people that security isn't something they need to be terrified of, but it's something that's actually fairly easy to do the basic stuff and to protect themselves. Uh, I will say that there's a part of me that is a little cynical about how we approach security awareness training in general. Most, if you go look at most uh, security shops, they're full of engineers, analysts, programmers, and maybe at a more mature place, one person doing security awareness. And unfortunately, I think what that means is that we do the bare minimum around security awareness. Uh, Those of us that work at large institutions, you may have, you know, 12 to 30,000 staff, 40 to 60,000 students and one person to talk about security awareness. That's kind of disappointing and underwhelming. And needless to say, it's, it's of marginal value. Um, at the same time, I believe security awareness training can be helpful. You know, one thing that we did recently here is we've been executing a bunch of um, mock phishing campaigns where we send people uh, what appears to be a phishing message. And when they get that message, if they click on the little link that's included into it or in the message, it takes them to a page that explains that they've been phished. Uh, this is a fake message. Here's how you could have recognized this was a phish. Uh, now, it's easy to say, look, when you deal with 
hundreds of thousands, if not millions of emails coming into your campus every day, sending these out is gonna have a marginal effect. But I will say it did have the effect of getting people talking about phishing. And uh, that was very interesting to see, and it was something I really didn't expect. But we announced we were doing this, and the offices in which we targeted with these messages, it became quite a, a subject of conversation. And in those cases, I think uh, the, the whole exercise was effective. We raised awareness around phishing messages, and that's a constructive thing. But there's another piece of this that I think is important and worth looking at. You know, we are institutions of higher learning. Most of what we do is educating people on how to look at the world, how to analyze the world, how to interact with the world. And we're relying on some very weak and um, uninteresting approaches to security awareness training. Um, making you look at a video online for 30 minutes once a year, that's a kind, it kind of throttles the imagination when you consider the, the richness of pedagogy that takes place at an institution like UCSD. So I think security awareness training has got some real opportunity ahead of it because I don't think we've tapped into modern pedagogy at all. But we've got a long way to go. We're a very immature um, domain um, in, in the entire security portfolio. So you mentioned the online videos. Is that something that you do today at your campus? Yeah, we do. Throughout the entire UC system, there are some purchased um, online courses. They're very short. They're 30 seconds to three minutes. Um, and once a year, everyone has to go through them. This is um, not widely loved, but it is a tool that does get the message out to everybody, and it is enforced. It's required by the entire system, which makes our job in security easier because it's um, presented as a system-wide initiative. And we've just recently switched vendors a little later. I think in early 2019, we're moving to a different vendor. Um, and you find this is very common in a lot of higher ed. It's just very difficult to get a meaningful message out to a large population um, via, you know, digital medium in a short period of time. So this is where everyone tends to fall. What I think we need to keep in mind as we look at these tools and this, these ways of delivering security awareness is they're not extremely expensive from the how much you have to pay perspective for these recordings and these videos, but they're very expensive in terms of staff time. I did a back of the envelope uh, calculation based on average salary at UCSD, and I'm estimating it's about a million dollars in lost staff time to do the security awareness training. Now, how, you know, how to measure that as an effective ROI is very challenging. But I think we need to look at these kinds of um, educational tools in terms of their total cost to the institution to evaluate their effectiveness. Um, I have no evidence at all that doing the security training every year has lowered the number of compromised computers that we have every year. I have no evidence that it's reduced the number of phishing attacks or uh, people that are falling for phishing every year. Mm -hmm. So, this goes back to my point about 
being a little cynical about uh, security awareness training. I believe it can work. Obviously, marketing and training works as sort of a human endeavor. But uh, is it worth a million dollars a year of staff time? Um, if not, maybe we need to look very carefully at what we're delivering and what we're expecting from people, what we expect them to learn. Um, well, that's a great segue into my next set of questions, Mike, around discussing security with leadership and actually getting your leadership to fund your cybersecurity initiatives. In this case, how do you go about that? Well, there's several approaches to this. And let's be frank that every institution is a little idiosyncratic. So depending on your leadership, simply talking about compliance, we must comply with these regulations, that will work and get things funded. There are some places where that doesn't work at all and you really need to tie it to risk. Some places are very concerned about lowering or in the case of, in many cases, the leadership wants you to eliminate risk. It's important, I believe, when you talk about these things, to do it not in the terms of preventing something from happening. It's better to talk about it in two terms. One is lowering risk, um, explaining that it doesn't matter what we invest in cybersecurity, we're still gonna have a certain amount of compromises, breaches that will take place. It is the cost of doing business in our century. But the other piece is you need to look at how are we funding security so that it advances the institution. Are we, for example, providing support to researchers that are doing, you know, that are funding a third of the institution through sponsored research? Are we providing services to them that helps make them either more competitive or to protect their research endeavor so that they don't get in trouble with the funding agencies. So I think you really have to nuance this based again on the personality of your institution, your leadership, uh, where you are in your security and the maturity of your security program. Um, many places have very mature programs and they can talk in terms of risk or return on investment or focus their efforts in uh, supporting researchers or the educational mission. But there are many places that are struggling just to get off the ground. And in which case, they may really be looking at the full portfolio of what a security office does and simply pointing out the big holes in it where they're really not doing much of anything. And they need to be talking about filling those holes. And they need to be talking about budgeting every year based on what it's going to take to offer that complete portfolio of security services. You know, years ago, I went through an exercise um, at another institution where we looked at every service a security office should offer. And then we evaluated how we were doing on each one of those services. Many of those services we weren't doing. We gave them a zero. Some we knew we were doing pretty mediocre, so we gave them a, you know, a, a, a C. Some we thought we were doing very well on, and we gave them an A. And then we looked at where we'd like to be in the next year for moving each one of those services forward. And we estimated how much it would cost from a budget perspective to achieve that, and that's how we built our budget. Um, the reason for trying an exercise like this is that it allowed me to ask for funding based on very specific gaps in our portfolio 
that I was able to explain to my boss why I was asking for those and where we would be when we had met those. Um, I think the big mistake that many of us in security have made over the years and that many in our um, profession do when we talk with senior leadership is we complain about not having enough funding, not enough staff. And frankly, if you're the um, CEO of a large organization or the CFO of a university or a provost or a chancellor, your job is basically having people come to you and complain they don't have enough resources. So you really don't want to just blend into the crowd of people asking for more resources. You want to say, I need to achieve the following goals. You need to make those metrics as black and white as possible and tie the funding you're asking for to the risk reduction that'll come with that and where you'll be when, you're, when you receive those fundings. It's, um, there's really nothing special about it from a security perspective versus almost any major program at an institution. It really needs to be tied to the deliverables you're gonna give them. Um, the challenge there is that, of course, you can't go into those offices and talk about, well, we're gonna have better antivirus. They don't care about that. What they care about, again, is faculty downtime. They care about disruption to the student educational mission. Um, they care about things that are related to the mission of the institution primarily, and not terms of art for security professionals. You really have to talk on the terms of the professional, of the leadership, and not on terms that make sense to your fellow CISOs. So that's a great point, Mike. Can you give an example of a situation where you have successfully tied security to a faculty or a student initiative? Well, let me give you an example a friend gave me. Um, he was having trouble uh, procuring funding for a anti-spam, anti-phishing solution for his campus. So he hired, I forget, a student or an intern or someone to estimate, you know, basically walk through their security tickets and estimate how much lost faculty time, uh, staff time, was spent because of compromised accounts due to phishing. And what he was able to do is then go back to his provost and say, you're losing six FTE of faculty time because you're not investing in a cutting, arc, cutting edge anti-spam, anti-phishing solution. And he had the math to show why he believed that. And he walked out of that meeting with the funding for his next-gen anti-phishing, anti-spam solution. Because he, he wasn't in there talking abstractly. He was saying, you're, you need six more faculty to make up for what you're not getting done here. And to a provost, that's a very, very understandable and compelling argument. That's a great example. Let's segue into measuring success in a security program. How do you personally measure the success of your security program? I take two approaches to this. Um, one is I do put some effort into looking at the completeness of my program compared to something like the NIST cybersecurity framework. So one of the exercises I go through every year is I take my budget and I take every line in my budget 
and I assign it to one of the little colored boxes on the NIST cybersecurity framework um, diagram, and I sort of form a heat chart of where am I spending money and where am I not spending money. Try to fill in the gaps or even out that, that spread. Now, I say I do some of this every year. I don't use this really as a strategic planning tool. I think the big secret in security is that while we all like these strategic frameworks and we leverage them, the truth is we're very opportunistic in security. So if we had, well, I'll give you an example from UCSD. We had an attack earlier this year that was targeting our Active Directory. So mid-year, we moved some money around and changed some projects and focused on deploying two-factor hardware-based um, authentication for our Active Directory OU administrator accounts. Now, we knew we needed to do this at some point in time. We did it when we did it in response to a very exigent circumstances, the attack on our PD. And so we used that to both justify something that not everyone wanted to do, but we recognized that it was urgent and needed to be done. And I suspect if you talk to many security shops, you'll find that at least half their year is spent responding to these kinds of things. You know, in many ways, operational security is intrinsically tactical. You're responding to threats and attacks. Um, now, that's what I do now, these two sort of, you know, opportunistic versus planned every year the, uh, you know, strategically in advance. The, where I'd like to go with this though, and what I'd like to measure on my security program, I'm just not there yet, is I'd like to monetize the cost of security more than I currently do. So I, earlier I mentioned that I think there's a cost to doing business. If you have a large network, you know, we've got a couple hundred thousand machines on the network at any point in time. We're a big network, but whether you're a big network or a small network, you're going to have compromises, you're gonna have users that click on malicious URLs, you're gonna have phishing attacks. I would like to characterize that from a financial perspective. And I would love to be able to say, here's sort of the coefficient of cost that security is gonna to bring to my network in a way that could scale as my network grows or my user base grows. And I would love to be able to engage in a conversation with my leadership that says, this is the equation I'm going to use that is going to determine the resources I need to secure our network to some understood level of risk. Um, I don't have the data to do that yet. And I think we've got several years here of maturing our program before we're ready to have that conversation. But I I'm really attracted to the notion that we stop talking with our leadership around security as a arbitrary set of failures. Something failed, we got compromised. But more as the background noise, the uh, quantum foam of our network, if you will, that is just inevitable because we have a large network with a large diverse population um, with many levels of expertise. and. You know, the last thing I want to do is try to uh, homogenize that environment in a way that it would actually impede research and teaching. Uh, so there's a couple of thoughts on um, 
how we measure success. You mentioned earlier that you're seeing some interesting trends in cybersecurity in higher education as well. And in a previous conversation you and I had, you noted that in some cases, security is becoming a pure compliance function within institutions. Can you tell me more about what you're noticing and you know, how this impacts being able to measure success and discuss it with leadership? Well, it's an interesting question because um, many people in leadership positions are going to be attracted to viewing security as a compliance function because compliance can be audited. Compliance can be measured typically. Um, the challenge is, is that our environments are so diverse. So, you know, if you take any, any decent sized campus, and again, even a small campus, I think this is true, having worked at one for a while, we are much more akin to a municipality than we are to a business. So, you know, at a place like UCSD, we have a police department, we have hospitals, we have ships out at sea, we have supercomputers, we have 10,000 kids living in dorms, you know, we have restaurants, you name it, we have some version of it. The trick with, the, the challenge with looking at security as a compliance function is yes, where? So I can look at the parts of campus that deal with controlled unclassified information, and I've got a very clean, understood compliance framework to use for measuring and evaluating them. That compliance framework is of marginal use to me as a compliance function, a regulatory function, when I look at some of the public big science research labs where the data is streaming to the public in real time there the problem set is completely different. So I worry that there's this race to compliance in security because it is so measurable um, or it appears to be so measurable to our leadership. Give me a benchmark, move to it, be compliant, and our problems go away. But I think our environments, and frankly, this is part of what makes them interesting in higher ed, is they're much more um, again, heterogeneous. Um, the diversity makes them challenging. Um, they're not banking environments, at least not everywhere. So that's part of what concerns me about that. And I'm afraid if we focus exclusively on the compliance piece, we do run the risk of putting barriers into place to the science that takes place at our institutions. That's a great point. Well, as we wrap up our discussion today, I'd love to get your thoughts on what other trends you see developing in higher ed cybersecurity in the, in the future, maybe over the next 12 to 24 months. Uh, sure. I think um, the biggest uh, trend is that none of us are going to be able to hire anybody. I think, you know, we, we didn't really talk about specific problems, the trend right now is that uh, salaries and availability of cybersecurity professionals um, are, are a huge problem for everyone, both in the corporate and in the public sector. And it's getting very, very challenging to hire qualified professionals. 
What I think that's going to accelerate over the next couple of years is a push for managing outsourcing of services. You know, the days where you had to have two smart people sitting in a room managing your security infrastructure are over. Um, it's still nice to have those two smart people managing parts of your infrastructure, but increasingly schools like ours are using turning to managed services uh, because they're available and they've gotten a lot better in the last five, six years. Uh, 10, 15 years ago when we were talking about this, they were very expensive and not very good. Nowadays, there's a lot of very good managed services. Unfortunately, they're still very expensive, but they may be cheaper than some of the staffing options that we've got available to us right now. I also think that when you look at the small institutions, um, I've worked most of my career at institutions of the scale of UCSD, but I did work for a few years at a much smaller private school. And I'll tell you one of the things that's challenging there is the portfolio of the security office is the same at the tiny little school. What that means is that those places are even more taxed than we are because they may have one or two people. You know, some of the real small schools can barely afford a single security professional. And especially these days, as salaries have gotten high, it's become almost impossible. So I think those schools in particular are going to have to find very creative ways to share resources, um, used um, hired guns as CISOs. I've seen some of the smaller schools doing that. Um, or just relying exclusively on managed services, um, which has an upside and a downside. Uh, there's a kind of cultural forensics to your culture and your environment that are difficult for managed services to deal with, but it's something we're just going to have to tackle. Well, thank you so much for your thoughts, Mike, on all of those very diverse topics. Sure, anytime. Thank you for asking. I enjoyed it quite a bit. This conversation is just in time for Cybersecurity Awareness Month. And this will conclude our discussion with Mike Korn on our Top of Mind podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you.